Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 22nd, we are studying Amos chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The prophet continues to speak the word of the Lord against the foreign nations around Judah and Israel. He continues to draw the circle tighter and closer to home. Today's text is the sixth in this series of eight, and it is a judgment against the nation of Moab. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be back. So, Pastor Cook, to get started this morning, let's let's do a little bit of historical background on the nation of Moab. We talked very briefly yesterday about Moab. It got mentioned in passing because the people of Moab are related to the Ammonites. The, the Moabites come out of the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his older daughter. And so we talked a little bit about that yesterday with the people of Ammon come out of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his younger daughter. And so Moab and, and Ammon are related to each other. It makes sense that they would appear together here in the book of Amos, one right after the other. What else should we know about the people of Moab historically that'll help us as we read Amos 2 today? Uh, well, there's uh, Ruth is a Moabite. Hmm. So I think when people uh, think of Moab, um, even if you're only got a passing interest or familiarity with Scripture, uh, if you're going to recognize Moab from anything, you're going to recognize it from the book of Ruth. Um, so Naomi uh, is uh, married to Elimelech, and uh, there's a famine in Judah. They're from Bethlehem, and so they head over to Moab because they can make a living over there, and they can feed their family. Uh, and so they head over there with their two sons, uh, Malon and Killian, and uh, while over there for 10 years, um, Elimelech and then the two sons, Malon and Killian, both die. Um, but before Malin and Killian die, they take on Moabite uh, wives, uh, Ruth and Orpah. Orpah stays behind, um, and Naomi and Ruth, they head back to, back to Judah, and that's where they meet Boaz, and the rest, as they say, is, is history. So that's the most familiar uh, passage. I'm, I've, I guess I can't say I looked all this up specifically to know that it's the most popular, but I'm sure it is. Uh, so that that's on the table. Another um, reference to, uh, well, that happened during the reign of the kings. Uh, Ehud, uh, if I remember correctly, is uh, uh, Eglon, king of Moab. Uh, so the famous left-handed uh, Benjaminite uh, who stabs the fat king, Eglon, that, that's all happening. It, that's Moab. So that's probably in or around the time of Ruth, I'm guessing probably preceding the, the days of Ruth and then um, and then you don't hear too much about Moab until you get to second Kings and in second Kings chapter uh, three you have uh, <clears throat> Jehoram is heading over uh, Ahab had so Ahab for all of his terribleness as a king he was very the most wicked king uh, that Israel the northern kingdom ever had. Um, even though he was really bad as theological, he was pretty good as far as economic development, uh, military prowess, things along these lines. And so Ahab was receiving a significant amount of tribute from the Moabites. After Ahab was over, the Moabites were uh, sensing a weakness in the kingdom. And Jehoram uh, wrangles Jehoshaphat uh, to head over to Moab and take on Misha, Misha, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, Misha, their king. And now they have a decision to make. 
because they're separated by Moab by the Dead Sea. You can either go north, cross the Jordan River, go through Ammon, and enter Moab that way, or you can go the south route, uh, which forces you to cross through Edom. They decide to cross through Edom, and in the process, they pick up the Edomite king to join them. So you have those three kings coming to attack Misha, and uh, it's it's just this hidden gem. If you've not read it uh, in a long time, uh, and I'm talking to you, the listener, uh, pick it up. It's absolutely just fascinating uh, what happened there. Um, so they, they had in uh, water uh, in the desert. Um, Elisha has this really interesting interaction with musicians uh, to summon the spirit, and, uh, and then they, uh, they do a significant amount of damage to Misha, <clears throat> but Misha uh, is only finally able to repel the Israelites when he sacrifices his own son on the walls of the city gates. Uh, which raises a bunch of theological questions that I can't answer. Um, but uh, so that that's kind of what we have with with Moab. And um, four generations after this episode of the three kings attacking Moab, uh, we get Amos and his ministry uh, to Jeroboam the second in the northern kingdom. Very good. Yeah. No, it is. It is. And, and I, I, I know you're talking to you, the listener, but also you, the host here. I just read Second Kings 3 in preparation for this, and it really is a very interesting story. A lot of things happen there, some of which, to explain theologically, as you said, are, are quite challenging and, and probably not the purpose of this show today. But, but dear listener, read Second Kings chapter 3 and, and talk about it with your pastor, and he will certainly be able to help you with that. A, a few summarizing thoughts, perhaps, on, on Moab. One of the things that that you pointed out for us there is that, and you see this in other places in the scriptures as well, that Moab is sometimes foe, sometimes friend of the people of Israel. And so, as an example, Ruth, the Moabitess, who eventually is included in the line of Christ, she would be an example of Moab being a friend of God's people. Another example of that during the life of King David before he's King David, when he's being pursued by King Saul, who is ready to kill David as as one who he believes is going to take the throne away from him, David actually sends his parents to Moab to take refuge in there while he is busy fleeing for his life. And the reason for that is because Ruth is in his line. Ruth the Moabitess is an ancestor of King David. And so you, you see this relationship between Moab and Israel, sometimes as a friend. In the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, just like we saw with the people of Ammon yesterday, the Lord commands Israel, when they're going into the Promised Land, not to harass Moab, much like they are not to harass Ammon. On the other hand, as, as you point out in 2 Kings chapter 3 and in other places, the story in the book of Judges with Eglon, the king of, of Moab, Moab is often very hostile towards God's people. Another, another example of that would be in, in Numbers chapter 25, where you have the, the intermarriage of Israelites with Moabite women, and they lead them into um, idolatry, idolatry after the, the Moabite gods. And, and that is, is kind of where I would kind of cap it off, I suppose. And you point this out in that 2 Kings chapter 3 account that the Moabites do not worship the Lord, the one true God. They, they worship a God often named uh, Chemosh, or I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that too, um, but a, a foreign God related to Baal, related to Milcah, Molech, one who was a very violent God, required child sacrifice, like we saw yesterday with the people of Ammon. And so those are the, those are the people we're talking about here, the, the Moabites. Any, anything to, to add to that conversation, Pastor Cook, before we start looking at, at Amos chapter 2 in particular? Yeah, for, for anyone interested in uh, kind of the historicity, uh, so we confess, of course, that uh, the Scripture uh, is, of course, theologically true, but when it speaks of historical matters, it is historically true. And this episode with Misha in uh, 2 Kings 3 uh, is one of these instances where we have corroborating evidence uh, of Scripture uh, from extra-biblical sources. So there's what's called the Misha Stele, uh, which you can look up, and it's very fascinating. And it, it 
from the Moabite perspective, what's been happening with the Moabites and their relationship with Israel. So Google that, M-E-S-H-A, and then Stele. I think it's S-T-E-L-E. Um, and so that's, that's just an interesting little uh, historical archaeological tidbit uh, to kind of help ground this uh, in, in human history. Hmm. Right, and that, that's a that's a wonderful thing to to point out to see how what we have here in Scripture matches up with what we know from history elsewhere. That God's word is both theologically true and historically true as well. The people of Moab are a real people, truly related to the people of Israel by blood, who did interact with the people of Israel throughout history, including in the time of Amos. And so, with that, let's take a look now at the text that we have before us in Amos chapter two. Verses 1 through 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. There is the now the sixth in this series of eight, this judgment against Moab. And Pastor Cook, we, we see some of the same elements that we've seen throughout these, these series of judgments. We've got the thus says the Lord. Amos is preaching, but it is the Lord who is talking. You've got the three transgressions and four, where this unrepentant continued sin. Now the Lord is going to to point out for Moab. You've got the the sending of fire and and then the the judgment that is pronounced. So if you want to make any comments on some of those shared features, feel free to do so. And and then start taking us particularly into what is spoken to Moab. The crime, the transgression that's pointed out is that he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. What, what are we talking about here, Pastor Cook? Uh, yeah, uh, no one's quite sure exactly uh, what, that, what that means. Um, uh, well, let me start with the, the pattern. Um, with, with these re- repetitive features, uh, you can uh, lull people into a sense of security which is what Amos is doing. Uh, so right now everyone's cheering, and the, the hammer will drop probably tomorrow or the next time you record. And, uh, and so things will get shaken up a bit, and it's going to catch people off guard in a way that forces them to reevaluate what's happening. So I always remembered um, when I was in grade school, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, and uh, they have a historic Fort Snelling. This is the place where all people... Everybody in Minnesota has taken a field trip to Fort Snelling. It's just, if you're from Minnesota, you, this is a thing that you do. And they have the old-timey blacksmith there. And uh, so he, he would uh, trick the kids because I was tricked, and I remember it. I was so embarrassed. Uh, he says, uh, you know, what do you call a person who works with gold? And then, oh, it's a goldsmith. Well, what do you call somebody who works, works with copper? Oh, it's a coppersmith. What do you call a person who works with silver? a silversmith and he runs through like 10 of these right uh and then he gets done and then he gets he says and what do you call a guy who works with wood and all the kids shout in uh in unison a woodsmith uh except uh my best friend whose dad was a carpenter and he says no it's a carpenter and and so uh he was setting us up right he this constant repetition he's setting us up uh to catch us off guard to make his point now this is what this is what Amos is doing. And so right now we're at like the last one of these. Uh, and so I'll let the next uh, speaker uh, share all the joys uh, of what uh, is coming up to follow. But this is the last one. Now, that doesn't mean it's not important or not serious. It is. Um, but, uh, but it's definitely following a pattern. It's also just a really good way to help people remember uh, if you're dealing with a, a case of um, – you know, there are questions abound about the literacy rate uh, or things like this. So these are words that people are hearing, and this is just a good rhetorical way to hear it. Um, sure. And, and if, I, uh, if I can, just to, before, you, yeah. before you go on into the, the burning into lime, and, and if you got more to say on that, that's great too. But just as you, you were pointing out earlier, 
that the scriptures are both theologically true and historically true, this would be an instance where, again, the scriptures are theologically true, they are, are written correctly, but they're also making use of, an excellent use of, rhetorical devices, and this would be one of them, where the prophet Amos arranges this material, all of it being true and important, but he's driving toward a specific point, as you're pointing out for us. And, and again, not to steal the thunder from tomorrow's show and guest, but but that point is coming, and and this repetition is is a part of that. So if there's more to say on the, the repetition or these various continued points, please, Patrick, do so, or go ahead and take us into the matter of burning these bones into lime. Sure. Uh, well, we'll move to the burning the bones into lime. I, uh, I'll admit the, the first time I, I read that in preparation for today, I immediately grabbed my concordance and said, well, what, does the word lime uh, show up anywhere else in Scripture? And it does in Isaiah 33, verse 12. And uh, once again, in the context of judgment, and once again, it's not just the word lime, but that exact phrase, this burning to lime. So uh, upon further investigation, uh, there's kind of two tracks here. Um, it might just be a way of saying, uh, you know, you burn, you know, like a kid would say, you get blown into smithereens, right? You're just a super emphatic way of expressing the extent to which something was was burnt, um, and that's certainly a faithful way to do it. There are other ways you could say burnt to ashes. There's a lot of other options available to you, uh, burnt to burnt to ash. Uh, one particular commentator pointed out that um, uh, the structure of the, the Hebrew uh, also opens up for us an avenue of um, not so much burning uh, down to lime, but burning into uh, line this this concept that um, you essentially are uh, how you would do this is you would take the bones of a king who's long dead and you would further desecrate or dishonor them uh, by grinding them up or burning them down into a line that's then used for mortar uh, in your in in your walls so. Um, as uh yeah it's uh and and that could I, it was one of these it could be um clearly uh what this this event this thing that happened was particularly egregious to god he he mentions three or four transgressions for which his punishment won't be revoked um and then this is the one he lists this is the thing that particularly rankles god which prop which suggests that maybe there's something a little bit more vindictive in this instance of burning to lime than others. So, uh, again, you, you can't pin it down with 100% certainty, but I think the context, the thrust of Amos's message, the consistency of God's punishment, his uh, particular highlighting of this sin uh, suggests that it was exceptionally egregious. So I tend to favor that uh, interpretation that says, yeah, this is uh, Moab has... Uh, gathered up the bones of uh, Edom, uh, burned it down, and made improper use of it. And if that's not something that resonates with uh, the hearer, um, I remind them that Joseph had extremely specific instructions concerning his bones uh, about, take them out of Egypt, don't leave me here, take me back home, fulfill the word of the Lord, that kind of a, that kind of a concept. So they're uh, additionally, uh, Josiah, during his reforms, uh, and, and I'm now risking uh, falling into a rabbit hole from which I will never return, but um, Josiah, in his religious reforms, goes up to Bethel, where Jeroboam has set up these golden calves uh, for worship so the people don't go to Jerusalem to worship. And he digs up the bones of the people there, uh, false priests and prophets of Baal, uh, and he, he desecrates those bones too. Um, but there he does it as a statement condemning uh, false worship rather than, you know, just because he's being mean or vindictive. And the reason why that whole thing is a fascinating concept anyway is Josiah is a king of the southern kingdom, 
and uh, the Golden Calves, you know, they're they're part of the Northern Kingdom. So that's a whole separate kingdom. Furthermore, the Northern Kingdom has been destroyed by them. Uh, so, you know, bring me back again when you get to uh, Josiah and Sharper Iron. I have a, I have a lot to say. Um, I'll, I'll make a note of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, some pretty, um, pretty interesting. Um, just some some theological uh, context uh, to understand the status of bones, the interaction of people, the way of showing honor or dishonoring the dead. Uh, and, and things of that sort. Um, so I, that's the burning to line. Right. So, I, and I think that's I a very do. helpful. Uh, no, that's very helpful. Very, very helpful comments there. And and so a couple of things. One, this matter of you know this may be silly, but burning to lime. We're not talking about limes that are the fruit, but we are talking about an ingredient that you would use to make mortar or some sort of building material. And, and so, right. yeah, burning maybe burning to lime in the sense of blown to smithereens, or more likely, I tend to agree with you, burning for the purpose of actually using it in the mortar. And, and so I, I think, I think though, the, the comment that you made on other bones that we see burned in the Scripture is a very helpful matter of context that we need to know as to why this is particularly egregious. This only makes sense that bony, sorry, burning bones into lime as a, a particularly egregious transgression that the Lord would point out only makes sense if the bones matter or if the, to speak more fully, if the body matters. So that right. even after the body has died, there's still something there that, that should be respected, that, that is important. And, and I know maybe this could be a, a rabbit trail that we could chase for a while, um, but to prevent us from getting too far down that rabbit trail, we have four minutes before the break. So, Pastor Cook, okay. if you want to go down that rabbit trail for four minutes here, go ahead. Sure. Uh, yep, stuff matters, as a beloved professor would often say, or God loves stuff. Uh, and so the bones, I think the reason we can do this, I think it packs even a greater punch, is that the the transgression is against the burning to lime, the bones of the king of Edom. Like, this isn't even a transgression against Israel or Judah. This isn't a transgression against God's chosen people. Uh, this is a transgression against, you know, God's created, you know, order and life. And, you know, every, every good, perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. So, um, you know, every every person and I, I'm fond of saying this, you know, stealing it from St. Paul, of course, but uh, everybody is someone for whom Christ died. And uh, and so the idea that you're going to uh, just mock uh, this treasured gift that God has uh, given to the world is not, it's, it's not good. Uh, it's not good at all. So, yeah, no, uh, again, it's an, it, I think the. I want to say it's interesting that the the transgression is against Edom, and I I say it's interesting because we expect, all right, if the God of Israel, if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to make this uh, stern, irrevocable uh, judgment, uh, they must have done something bad against the people of Israel, which we see this happen often enough. Uh, but it's not even that. It doesn't even get to that point. It's like, no, you just, you treated the body in a way that you are not to treat the body. Uh, so you you don't burn people down and then turn them into usable, usable stuff, you know, to make, you know, fortify your walls or something like this. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the, the bones, the bones matter, the body matters because that's, who God created you to be. Um, so as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, uh, you're not, uh, you do not have a body. You are body and soul together. Uh, so you, you are your, your body. So, I don't know right. if that was and, four and minutes, but we've gotten Well, it was close. close. Yeah, no, I'll just make a couple of closing <laughs> comments then before we go to the break. But, but yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You, you don't have a body. You are a body. This is, is who you are. It is God's gift for you as as a human being and so to treat it with that respect 
that this is God's gift. And, and especially for us as Christians then, recognizing that our Lord Jesus Christ took on this human flesh. He, he took on our human body, and that body was crucified, and that body is raised. This still is his body, now glorified. And so the body matters. And, and not that Amos chapter 2 would be the place that we would point to to give rules about what burial looks like or, or proper, I mean, what you were saying there about taking the body and burning it so that you can use it for something, I think speaks volumes to, to the world that we live in today about, about treating it in a totally utilitarian fashion like that, I think would be a, a rabbit hole we could chase, but, but we're not going to. But, but right. this, this all fits in with this scriptural perspective that God cares about stuff. He cares about our bodies. He's the one who gave us our bodies. This is who we are as human beings, body and soul. And so to desecrate that body, regardless of, of whether that person is a Christian or not, is to do a horrible thing to what God has given. And that's what we're seeing here from the people of Moab committing this horrible transgression in Amos chapter 2, which we're looking at here on Sharper Iron. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, October 22nd, as we study Amos chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, with Pastor Tim Cook of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, on the other side of the break, we were talking about this matter of burning to lime the bones of the king of Edom and the great desecration that is of the human body, which is God's gift. And so then in verse 2, the Lord begins to pronounce his judgment. And like we've seen in the other judgments thus far, the judgment is a fire upon Moab, which seems quite fitting in this case, particularly given the nature of the crime that Moab was committing. Pastor Cook, help us to, to dig into this concept of fire as God's judgment here and in other places in the scriptures. Sure. The, God, God's wrath... Um, uh, is often depicted as uh, a, a fire, or at the very least, hot. So uh, the word anger uh, in in Hebrew, you get this this nostrils. He was hot in the face. Uh, that that's kind of that's the concept we have going on there. I think the the greatest example or the first example of fire as judgment uh, upon anybody would be the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so the you know where we get the idea of fire and brimstone uh, raining down down from heaven. And so God speaks about uh, fire in a destructing slash judging, judging way uh, throughout Scripture uh, again and again. And uh, also when you move into the, the New Testament, where, you know, the lake of burning sulfur, we're, we're talking about uh, anyone who does not bear fruit, uh, the branch will be cut off and thrown into the fire. So, uh, yeah, fire, um, it's just a lot of uh, a lot of judgment there. This is uh, one of the ways in which God, God shows, his, shows his judgment. So, so with, uh, well, with, well, yeah. go ahead, keep going, keep going. Well, I, there are two places in Scripture that I'm aware of, three, but I guess, where fire isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, one is uh, the idea of the road on, of, uh, on the road to Emmaus. The disciples reflect, uh, did not our hearts burn within us? Though I don't know that, that you want to necessarily take that as a, a warm fuzzy, uh, but maybe a God convicted of us of what needed to be said as we weren't understanding the importance of the resurrection. 
I mean, that's not typically a thing you would brag about is, oh, we were so silly, we just didn't get it. Um, but then also uh, the idea of – oh, I have, I have more things now. Uh, mine keeps wandering. The fan into flame uh, is, is definitely a, a positive take on, on fire as an element within Christendom as Paul and George Timothy, the fan into fame, flame, uh, his faith. Uh, and then let's not forget about James, uh, his uh, warning that the tongue is an all-consuming fire. Um, so there's, yeah, typically fire is uh, a form of judgment. And if you want, you can even look at uh, Jesus referring to, I have a, a, a baptism. Uh, it would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, what is this baptism of fire? I mean, that's probably a separate Bible study for a separate day, but um, it's uh, it's probably not, again, a warm, fuzzy, or a feeling of satisfaction that makes you just kind of glow inside. Um, it's it's more stern than that. So fire, typically, as, as you pointed out, is the sign of God's judgment. And I think as you were drawing those parallel passages together for us, one of the things that we should see in this repetition of fire here in the book of Amos is that not only is the Lord talking about fire in terms of cities literally burning under siege and and those types of military actions that were happening in the Old Testament days, but when we hear God talking about sending fire upon these nations, we should also have at least one eye looking forward to those end-time judgments. And and also then, and I'm glad you brought up that verse from Luke 12, because that's where I was thinking too, where Jesus talks about how he came to kindle a fire and then have a a baptism to be baptized with. I think that helps, helps us as Christians grapple with this idea of God sending fire, sending judgment, and how it is that that we would escape that judgment. Pastor Cook, can you help us sort of draw that out biblically? Perhaps. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, um, this is one of these things, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm wondering how, uh, how much I've thought about it before. Um, but uh, the end time stuff with um, Peter, we get the, we get the destruction of, of fire, uh, Second Peter mentions me- mentions this about the the end of the world. Uh, don't go crazy and uh, take that hyper literally to look at it as being some uh, you know prophecy that the world is going to be destroyed by like nuclear weapons or something. Uh, so so try not to be silly. Um, but the, but the fire is a language. Also the fire as a, a purifier, um, which is kind of a nice pun there. Um, but a refining fire, okay? We see this in the book of Malachi. And so, yeah, the Lord is going to cast this uh, fire upon upon the earth, oh, that it were already kindled. And um, so, yeah, fire has a way of uh, of cleansing. I'm, what, I'm trying to think of the hymn, um, Lord of all hopefulness, maybe, your, your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Uh, so we see this also in our in our hymnody, but, um, but I've often taken, and I don't know if this is, I, I can't say that I've read a book that really hammers this down or any particular article, but the, the baptism with which Jesus seems to be baptized, that, that fire baptism, I've often uh, just interpreted as being uh, the crucifixion. Now, whether that's a one-to-one correlation or not is maybe up for debate, but there's certainly no way that Jesus is uh, enduring a baptism of fire that isn't somehow connected uh, to his to his death on the cross, um, especially since he talks about it as being his baptism uh, after he's already been baptized. Uh, so this is something else, uh, this, this washing and, th- and this judgment, and so this, this fire, fiery wrath of God, um, you know, he certainly uh, took on the wrath of God while he was uh, nailed, nailed to the tree. And uh, so put in then uh, what that means for the people of God, uh, Jesus taking on uh, God's wrath, satisfying it, your substitutionary atonement, things of that sort. Um, but uh, it's good to have uh, Jesus enduring that thing, uh, that wrath of God for us. As uh, Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 1 at the end, uh, he says, to, to save us from the wrath of God to come. 
And um, so we, uh, we rest in Christ, who's endured that baptism and uh, now lives uh, and reigns forever. And so whatever judgment is yet to come, uh, if you're with Christ, you'll, you're going to make it through. And if you're not with Christ, it's going to be uproarious and very uh, awkward uh, and painful and not good. So repent and believe the good news. Which is what Amos is ultimately preaching here for the people of Moab. And, and even as he's driving towards getting to Israel, as you pointed out earlier, Moab needs to hear this too. The, the gospel is for Moab. And as we said at the very beginning, Moab is there in the line of Christ with Ruth. And, and so we, we see that universal nature of the preaching of repentance. To, to go back to, to Luke chapter 12, which you brought up, that's the way that I've always taken it too, is to see that when Jesus says that he's come to kindle a fire on the earth, and then he immediately follows up with, I have a baptism to be baptized with. I've always connected those two things, as you said, in the crucifixion that he endures. This fire that he comes to kindle first falls upon him there on the cross as God's wrath is is endured by him in all of its fullness, so that when the fire of the last day comes, those who are found in him are spared. They've been brought through that fire already, through their baptism into him. So, and the point of, and I appreciate the way you, you helped us see all of those things, the reason for bringing it out here is so that as we hear Amos preach about fire multiple times in these first two chapters, we should be thinking forward to those things, even as we talk about the historical fulfillment of them, the, the literal destruction of various cities in the ancient Near East, we should also be thinking about that preaching that, that would ultimately drive us to Christ and to faith in him. So the fire comes up again, and then Amos continues to preach about devouring strongholds. And then as he, he talks about what's going to happen to Moab, Amos says that Moab's going to die amid uproar, amid shouting the sound of the trumpet. This judgment that's being described here is described in very public terms. Uh, Pastor Cook, what, what's going on there in that second half of verse 2? Sure, the, the, the trumpets are, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a public, you get, get the concept of, of war, um, and uh, it's this big, this big, loud destruction. You think of, I am reminded of these uh, occasions where, um, God offers up his warning through the prophets about, I will make your, your name a byword among the nations, right? So when, when there's a, a particular um, devastating uh, battle uh, or, um, or victory for the victor, you know, th these things have a way of, of sticking with us. Um, I remember uh, this is pretty, pretty obscure, but, it's, you know, maybe 10 years ago, um, the Yankees and the Red Sox uh, were playing during the regular season, but they, you know, they're jockeying for postseason positioning. Uh, and uh, the Yankees had played a five-game series up in Boston, and they swept them. And uh, so it became known as the Second Boston Massacre. Okay, so um, anyway, it's this loud, public, uh, enduring remembrance of remember. Oh, this is. This is bad. And so that, that's what's going on here. Um, the trumpets are, are often uh, sounded. Uh, we think of Jericho uh, would be another example of where all these things occur. So, um, yeah, I, don't, I think that's uh, pretty well the, the long and the short of it. There might be more there. We have, if you want to keep pointing people forward to the end times, uh, Jesus uh, promises to return with us, you know, the sound of the trumpet of God, as we read in First Thessalonians four. Um, but you got to make a few, got to make a few stops before you just skip from here to there. But it's one of those instances where the word trumpet uh, just jumping out at you. So the connection is not too tough. Sure, and we saw the the trumpets in the previous series we did with the Book of Exodus. You've got the sound of trumpets there at at Mount Sinai as well. So this this nature of loud, boisterous, very public, and and sounds of, I guess it depends which side you're on as to how you're going to hear these sounds. If you're on the victor's side, these are the sounds of victory, of, of triumph. But for 
Moab to hear these sounds, these are, are sounds of defeat, of judgment, and, and in a very public way. So the, the sounds of battle are, are coming against Moab here. And, and indeed, this, this happens, right, Pastor Cook? I mean, Moab, like we've seen the other nations, and maybe we can't always point to a specific date and time and, and conqueror, but, but Moab falls out of, of history, essentially, right? Yeah, Moab is never referenced in the New Testament. The, the nation Moab does not get referenced once. So, um, yeah, it, you're right. It just kind of disappears as a, being of no consequence uh, anymore. So kind of like, you know, the Hittites just kind of are gone. Uh, Moab is that way, too. <clears throat> so that, that takes us then into verse 3, where Amos, or the Lord, speaking through Amos, says, I will cut off. That's a, a familiar biblical phrase, that the Lord would cut off a, a people or a person. Right. And um, I looked this up. I, I was curious to know, when is the first time that verbiage shows up in the Scripture to cut off? And uh, it's actually in the context of the promise of God's covenant with Noah, and indeed his covenant with the entire world, that uh, in Genesis 9, I will never again cut off from the face of the earth, you know, with the waters of a flood, etc. So his great promise that leads to the rainbow uh, in the sky. And so the first example, the very first obvious example, if Jesus says, I'm not going to do this for God, uh, of course, uh, if he says, I'm not going to do this again, that would suggest that it was done once. And so the first example of people being cut off is the great, terrible destruction of, uh, of the flood. And, um, and then we see this again and again and again, and it's just it's so incredibly prominent. And it's particularly prominent in the northern kingdom to whom Amos is preaching. And so uh, Jeroboam II would be the fourth generation of Jehu, who was maybe kind of possibly not terrible. Uh, so he's got some years where he's faithful to the Lord. He wipes out, he cuts off, he destroys, he eradicates the, the family of Ahab. Uh, and uh, disturbingly violent. I had my congregation last year as part of our Lenten piety read through First and Second Kings and then gathered them together and said, all right, at the end of Lent, what, what are your impressions uh, of First and Second Kings? You know, a lot of people are reading them for the first time um, or definitely the first time as an adult, and they're like, I, the world is as terrible today as it was then. Like, it's just it's bad. And so they're picking up on the violence, and um, there's a lot of time spent around the what you would call the Omrid or Omride dynasty, that the Ahab's father was Omri, and then they last for a while, it covers the entire ministry of Elijah and Elisha, uh, and then a little bit beyond that. And so Jehu, he wipes him out, and then he is given a promise that um, due to some uh, interactions with prophets about how long Jehu's family will live, and the answer is four generations. And, uh, and the reason why I'm bringing this up specifically within the context of family being cut off is because that's the end of verse 3. Uh, it's, uh, I'm going to cut off the king, oh, and I'm going to kill all the princes too. And so it's this... Uh, you know, that's, that's bad news for whatever family's in charge. And in this case of Moab, it might just spell the end of Moab altogether. Like if there's just no one left to take over, maybe some, you know, some other country uh, just fills the void, much the way the Assyrians came in, destroyed the northern kingdom, and now we have Samaritans, uh, who Jesus himself is calling foreigners in Luke chapter 17. So... So, and I, I think, too, that you point out this phrase, I will cut off, is very prominent in the Northern Kingdom, plays right into what Amos is doing here as well. Again, as you said earlier, at this point in Amos's sermon, the people of Israel are cheering along with him. They're getting what they right. deserve. The Lord should be cutting off people like Moab, but he's about to turn that corner and take these phrases and then use them against his own the people of Israel, as, as we will see in, in coming episodes. So, yeah, that, that plays right into it. 
and two to see that that Jeroboam the second, who is you said, I understand you right that Jeroboam the second is the fourth from Yehu, and so he's going to be the last one in the line of, of right. Yehu. Is that correct historically? Yeah, that should be. It's, it's either the last or he's the second to last. I forget if the fourth generation is four after Jehu or, or if he's generation number one. Uh, I forget. Uh, but uh, but Je- Jeroboam, this, the closest that the northern kingdom gets to anything resembling peace uh, is right now during his reign. And when he dies, it it's just it's a mess. Uh, and it's all downhill very quickly from them. Um so, and a lot of that has to do with you have all these dynastic changes. So you've got Omri and Ahab and their family, and then you've got Jehu and his generation, and then it's just coup d'etat after coup after coup, and uh, until finally the Assyrians just do them in. So that's what's going on in uh, in the Northern Kingdom. I mean, he's pe- he's preaching. Uh, Amos is. And I don't think this can be overstated. Uh, he is preaching in, a t- in an era of incredible peace and prosperity. Um, and so he is going to catch people off guard when this uh, razor edge of the Lord is going to be turned against the people. The big challenge is going to be people are going to have to trust the Word of God over what their eyes and their ears are telling them. And I think this is a particularly applicable for our current culture. I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the media. I don't mean to suggest otherwise, but... Um, you know, you, you talk to anybody who lived through World War II over in Europe, you know, things are really good here right now. <laughs> I mean, they, they really are. And so to come in as a, a proclaimer of God's word, be it as a pastor or just as a faithful Christian who's seeking to rely on God, people might just look at you like you're crazy. Like, why? What do you mean repent? Things have never been better. You know, um, the, the water is, you know— clean. I was just reading, um, and, and you're a pastor, so you'll get these uh, Lutherans Engage the World magazines will come across your desk quarterly. I was reading about a medical mission trip over to, uh, now I'm forgetting the country, which is terrible. Um, and Africa doesn't narrow it down because it's huge. Um, but, uh, you know, the the shock on the, the gal who went over and kind of that guilt of coming back to America and the opulence and the just the access to clean water and uh, sterilized medical equipment and just everything like that. So we've, we've got it good, um, but can you uh, remain faithful? It's uh, very difficult for the rich man, uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, Amos, he's, he's preaching to our context, uh, maybe more so than any other uh, prophet uh, in Scripture. And so we should pay attention because uh, it can turn quickly. Um, it can it can turn so quickly. You just well, every good perfect gift is from above, and if God decides to not coming from above, your life will change in a hurry. So, yeah, very very applicable. And and again, what what is Amos doing here with Moab? Then he's setting the people up precisely. To, to hear that news, as surprising and shocking as it may be. Of course, Moab's ruler needs to be cut off. Of course, Moab's princes need to be killed, they would be saying. But you mean us too, Amos? That's where he's going. And and that's what we need to hear too, is, is as we hear this preaching of repentance, to recognize that that preaching of repentance is coming for us as well. We need this same repentance. That same judgment of fire would fall upon us as well for our sins. Even if they aren't burning someone's bones into lime, the transgressions are there. And and we need to hear that same preaching of repentance that Amos has been preaching to these various nations as well. And that's where he's he's turning the corner in just the next the next section. Pastor Cook, we have just under four minutes left on the morning. Any thoughts that we didn't get to talk about here in these three verses of Amos, or, or give us a, a summary of, of what we've got here. Yeah, uh, quick summary is, uh, this is the last one. Uh, we keep referencing this, this turning of the corner, uh, so don't want to take away uh, that thunder. Um, but uh, God, you know, three, three for three transgressions and four, there's, there's enough sin to go around. You don't need to be creative to come up with something you're guilty of. Um, as we learn in our catechism, we daily sin much and deserve nothing but punishment. 
And uh, and so the the solution here, the pro- the purpose of the proclamation, uh, it's not for hand wringing or cheerleading. Uh, it's not a yeah you go get them preacher. You know, um, as the people of Israel will quickly find out, and and as the people in the pew uh, hopefully are learning from their pastor, is he's actually talking to you. Um, so. I would encourage all the hearers of KFUO that, um, you know, if uh, if you go into the sanctuary and the pastor's railing against the evils of abortion uh, or uh, human sexuality and, and kind of what the world has done with that, um, you know, you can sit there and cheer along and, yeah, you really delivered the law, but that law didn't convict you at all uh, if you're not a person who's ever had to deal with that. And so um, the law is designed to convict you, too. And so you can cheer along uh, as a pastor uh, preaches against the things that drive you nuts, um, but you better be ready because it won't be long before the pastor um, turns the corner and he hits you with something that you're uh, guilty of, three, four transgressions, be it bitterness, uh, envy, uh, riling, you know, stirring the pot, creating division, um, refusal to prioritize the word of God, relying on convenience, opulence, it's just the, the list goes on and on. So be slow to uh, cheer the condemnation of people. Uh, Ezekiel tells us that God does not desire the death of the wicked, but that he would turn from his sin and live. Uh, and so uh, I would encourage you to do that too. We repent. Uh, we turn back. Any any turn toward Jesus is a turn away from sin. Uh, so you, you you turn toward Jesus, and uh, and that is your well. It's the only thing you have going for you, uh, and uh, and that's actually good news. Because that's all you need. That's all you need. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in. Millbank, South Dakota, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Pastor Cook, thank you so much for your time today. Yep, glad to do it. Thank you. Amos is preaching to Moab, to these foreign nations. He's preaching to you and to me. Repentance is what we need. And in order to repent, we need Jesus. We need to turn to him. A turn to Christ is a turn away from sin. And Christ is the one to whom Amos is pointing us. He's getting there. It will come in chapter 9, but he's even here present already in Amos 1 and 2, this word of the Lord, the word of the Lord that we would hear Christ repent and believe. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.